This is Real Health Chats, real talk about health issues important to you and your family. I'm Dr. D. And I'm Becky, the doctor's wife. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Real Health Chats. I'm Dr. D. And I'm Becky, the doctor's wife. And this is episode 19, and can you guess what we're going to talk about? It's May 2020. That's a clue. I think we'll talk about COVID. All righty then. Haven't heard much about that lately. Still in the news. We're still talking about it. We're still worried about it. We're debating about it more. That's true. And we'll just give a little update from our perspective today about what's going on where we live and what's going on throughout the rest of the country. I think the biggest news right now, which is causing the biggest debate, is the fact that we're opening up. Yes, so where we live, we opened up slowly starting May 1st, which was 19 days ago. That seems like forever ago. Doesn't it? This whole last two months has seemed like a year or two. So right now, places are starting to open up slowly, having limited gatherings, letting people come to restaurants with limited seating capacity. People having to sit at tables separate from one another. Most establishments, their staff is still wearing masks and often gloves. Yes, and they're doing things like making all paper disposable menus and only using disposable flatware and things like that. Right. But people are able to go out and go to a restaurant now. People are able to go get their hair cut at a salon or barbershop. That's new this week. That is new. So we're slowly opening up. Gyms are starting to open up with some specific rules and guidelines. Right. And we're still seeing cases. There hasn't been a huge uptick in cases, but there's still a steady stream of cases. Uh, Several days in a row in our area, we had 10 or 12 new cases in a row. I think we had one day where there was eight, and yesterday there might have been 21. Yesterday or the day before, there was 21 in our county. So I think as we continue to do this slowly and in a systematic, careful way, we're still going to see a smoldering or a slow, steady stream of cases without a big wave, we hope. I think that's where a lot of the confusion and debate has come in about opening things up. You have people who have gathered at each end of the spectrum of we should not open up until this thing is gone and we should open everything up and let the virus fall where it may, (laughs) so to speak. Right. But somewhere in the middle is probably the majority of people. We're ready to open up. We want our businesses to start thriving again and people to get back to work. But we also don't really want to get sick. We don't want to get other people sick. But I think the biggest confusion is sometimes why we shut everything down to start with. Well, and that's still debatable, I think. But from my perspective and my opinion is that the the important thing about shutting down was we were able to, well, like we said, flatten the curve, right? We were able to decrease the level of the initial spike and keep our healthcare system from being completely overrun in most parts of the country. Now, there were some areas that for 
two or three weeks, like New York and New Orleans and some other areas in the Midwest and, you know, uh, California and Washington that were that were hit rather hard. Uh, but those cases have slowed down as they instituted more social distancing and isolation and quarantines. So what this two months gave us was a chance to increase our testing capacity, decide what some good treatment strategies are, because all over the world, all over the country, people were trying things to treat this disease. And now I think most people, most places, uh, have a handle on a good way to treat this once people get seriously ill. Like a best course of action. Yeah. And we're still learning things about it. And so that's going to change. But at least it gave us time to do that in a more systematic way instead of everybody across the country being like New York and New Orleans were. Getting sick all at one time. Right. From some of the things I've read, people are confused about it because they think we need to get rid of it or that's the purpose of why we had the shutdown and we're going to open up because it's less likely for people to get the virus. And that's not really why everything was shut down. Well, I don't think the intent was ever to get rid of the virus because it's obvious it's here with us and it's here to stay. We're always going to have a chance of being infected. And until a certain number of people in the country are infected or we get a vaccine, then it's it's always going to be around and have a chance to infect and make people seriously ill. And a vaccine is still down the road. We've said right. that before. It's a year right. or more away. And there's still lots of things we don't know. We don't know if once you get this virus, if you're immune from further infections. In some places, it appears that people are getting it twice. They're being reinfected. So that's a little worrisome, honestly, because, you know, with a lot of things, we think, well, once you get it, you're immune to getting it again. But the flu's not like that. The flu isn't like that. So that's why would... we get a flu shot every year. But typically in a flu season, uh, someone doesn't get the flu twice. Right. It's certainly possible because there's different strains. But we, we were hopeful that at least getting this once would provide some immunity to getting it again. And it probably does. It may be certain people that are more likely to get it again. We, Like I said, we don't know all those answers. The other thing we don't know is how long that immunity lasts, if it gives immunity. And so the idea of herd immunity may work in this case. It may not. We just don't know. We're very hopeful that once a vaccine is developed, that that will provide people with maybe short-term immunity like the flu vaccine does, hopefully long-term immunity, so that we can get rid of this strain of this virus. We don't know yet if it's going to be a seasonal type of virus or if it's just going to hang out or if it's going to disappear once right. everybody gets it. <laughs> right. We don't know any of that There's stuff. so much we don't know and it's just going to take time. And we live in a time where we like everything to be answered immediately. I think about when I grew up and everything was solved in a 30-minute episode of a TV show. Right. Watch a crime show and it was all solved in 30 minutes or an hour. But we still had commercial breaks where they obviously had time to work on this thing behind the scenes, right? <laughs> right. And nowadays, we don't even have commercials, so it's even more immediate. Yeah, that's so <laughs> we true. We want things solved, and we want things taken care of. And I think that kind of feeds into why we're a little less patient 
and we want answers now and we want to know what's happening and we want to know how to solve it and we want to know how we can protect ourselves and we want to be healed right away from it. I think that's just how our society is and and how we've trained ourselves and our mindset. I agree. And the other thing that's happened, too, which is really weird, is it's it's been so politicized. And so there's one group of people that really have strong opinions about it one way, like you said earlier, and then uh, another the other way. And the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And we haven't discovered all of it yet. So for for those who think, you know, we did too much to shut down the economy. Maybe that's true. We don't know. For those who think that we're opening up too early, time will tell. We don't know. know, We're going with the best information we have. And I hope that the, the leaders are using a strategy that seems the safest for the most people. Now, just because we're doing this doesn't mean the threat of this virus is any less. Some some things we do know is that it can make some people really, really sick and die. It can also affect people for many weeks. Yeah, make them sick a long time. Right, where Uh, other people don't. And it appears that some people, especially those that get seriously ill and survive it, may have some long-term consequences of it because how the, the virus affects the lungs and the heart and the blood vessels uh, of our body. So we know that a lot of people that get infected don't get sick at all or have really mild illness. We think people can spread it before they start having any symptoms at all or while they're asymptomatic, and that's why it can spread so easily. And so there are some things we've learned about this, and I think if we're smart about how we interact with other people, how we open back up and let people who are still vulnerable stay socially distant in a manner that they feel comfortable, then I think we can prevent people from getting seriously ill. I know for us personally, we've kept a very small circle, partly because you go to an office every day where you have the possibility of it coming into your office and you being in close contact. We have gone to the store We have ordered food out, but outside of that, which I think have all been done safely, we still wear a mask and we don't like to be right up next to people in the grocery store, especially if they're not wearing a mask, but we've kept a small circle. We're starting to widen that circle a little bit, not a whole lot. Right. Our teenager has been to a couple of social events with a circle of people that we know that have kept their circles small, and they've been careful about social distancing and things like that. So our circle's getting a little larger as things are opening up. Uh, but we still try and keep our numbers down mm-hmm. and keep, you know, socially distant, even though we are around maybe a few more people. But I'm around a lot of people every day at work, and I try and uh, be very safe, wash my hands. We're wearing masks in the office. Our patients are wearing masks. And so we're doing the best we can, which is really all that we can do. And I think that's what we would encourage everyone else to do. Keep washing your hands. Keep using your hand sanitizer. Wipe down those buggies. Wash your fruits and vegetables when you get them home. Things like that. Well, I think you're right. I think some behaviors we hope stick. Right. 
through this. But a lot of people are not wanting to wear masks. And there's a lot of controversy over masks. That's another one of those hot button topics. And again, it, it seems to be almost politicized in a way that's strange to me. I don't want to wear it because someone's making me wear it. Yeah, you know, a rebellious teenager attitude. But I don't want to offend anybody either because certainly people have the right to make a decision about that in most cases. Some businesses require them. Right. You don't have to go to those businesses. Right. So it's absolutely their right to. I, I think, you know, it's been shown pretty well that wearing masks can prevent the spread of this. But it requires most people to wear a mask. When I wear a mask, it's not protecting me much from catching this illness. When I wear a mask, it's really protecting the people that I come in contact with from me if I happen to have it but am not sick yet. Right. So your mask protects me from you and my mask protects you from me. And then those masks together do help prevent us from breathing this virus in, hopefully if we walk by someone that's breathing it out. The other thing that masks do help prevent is touching our face, especially around our nose and mouth. Unless your eyes adjusting your mask. <laughs> yeah, but then you're touching the mask. That's true, <laughs> if you're careful. If you're careful. And so that does prevent the transmission in a way from if you were to touch something and then touch your face subconsciously because that's how it happens too. Now, of course, on social media, everybody is <laughs> is fighting for their position. Or some people are legitimately asking questions like, I don't want to start an argument here, but please share what you know. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of information that is being shared about masks, wearing masks, not wearing masks. That was from a long time ago. Right. That's not up to date and relevant. So I think one piece of advice I would give anybody is check the source and check the date yeah. because just like we're learning new things about the illness, we're also learning new things about how to stay safe and protect ourselves and others from it. Yeah, that's correct. I think on May 20th, 2020, the recommendation would be if you're out and about, wear a mask. It's not going to hurt anybody. Uh, you could be protecting people from you having the illness. You could potentially protect yourself from getting the illness and we'll stop the spread of it if more people do wear masks. So so what are you hearing about testing? That's a big question. In the month of May, more testing was supposed to be available. Are we seeing that? Are we seeing that more tests are available, either the test to find out if you have it or the antibody testing? Yes. So uh, at least in our area, and I'm sure this is true in other parts of the country as well, we have much more flexibility on the ability to test patients. Now, we still have kind of hierarchy of, of patients and people who need to be tested, but uh, we're not restricted as who needs to be tested to just ER and hospital patients now. Um, and in fact, we're being encouraged to test people with symptoms so that we can find out who has this and isolate them and their contacts so we can decrease the spread of this. That's one way that we can make opening up the economy and society safer is, and if, we, faster. is if we can test more people, find out for sure who has it, 
and then isolate them and the people they've been in contact with. So with more flexibility and more testing available, that's also going to lead to a spike in numbers, not necessarily the number of cases or the percentage of the population who are being infected, just better, yeah. we're just better able to test it. Right, and that may be one of the reasons we're seeing an increase in numbers in some areas because we're testing more people. So some people may interpret that as the statistics being skewed one way or the other. I don't know. I don't want to get into all that. Because what we want to do is decrease the spread of this to people who are the most vulnerable. And we can do that better if we find out who has it and isolate them so that they don't spread it to other people during that time where they only have mild symptoms and aren't quarantining themselves. I have a question about people who have been tested, who have gotten a negative, but are still having symptoms of this disease. They've had upper respiratory symptoms. They've had chronic headache ever since they first started having symptoms. They're having nausea, diarrhea, some of the other things that we think are associated with it and have tested negative more than once. So what should those people do? Okay, that's a that's a good question. They're so really I'm speaking one case in particular and they're very concerned about what effect all of this is having on them and if it's something different and obviously they're doing some other testing to find out, but I think that's happened where people are very symptomatic and have gotten negative test results. So that's a multiple part question. The first part of that question is, well, is answered by the fact that at least 30 and maybe 50 percent false negative rates on some of the tests. That's a lot. So in some people, (laughs) it's like flipping a coin, right, whether you have it or not. The way I would think about this is what would we do if we didn't have a test? That's a good way to think about it. So what we would do if we didn't have a test, if you had the symptoms of covid then we would say you need to isolate yourself for 14 days, okay? If you get worse, if you get progressively worse, then you need to go to the hospital and get taken care of in a way that we can take care of you. Now, there's no treatment for COVID, but there are supportive measures. There are symptomatic treatments. There are positional treatments. So there are things we can do to help people get through this. But if they have the right symptoms, but they're testing negative, they still may have it. It's just a problem with the test and not a problem with the patient, right? So the other issue is, is there are other things that cause these symptoms besides COVID. There's other viruses out there. There's other illnesses. People who have chronic illnesses are more susceptible to other things too. And so one of the things we would want to do if somebody came in and they were getting progressively worse would be to rule out some of those other things. Do they have strep throat? Do they have flu? Do they have pneumonia from something else? And so they would need to be tested for those other things. And there's a lot of people who have COVID based on all the clinical serious signs and symptoms but, but may not test positive. Going back to your original question, if someone tests negative, but they're still having symptoms, then they need to be at home quarantined until they don't have symptoms. If they continue to get worse, they need to seek medical care and not just stay home and get worse and worse and worse. Right. For two reasons. One, they could 
be developing serious COVID and need help, or they could have something else that, that could actually be treated and be taken care of. Right. I think that's good to know because it's easy to think you're going to ride it out because eventually it's going to go away, especially if there is something else going on that yeah. it can be treated. Right. Now, you, you brought up another point in your question is that there's lots of symptoms. Now, we realize that that there's other things besides fever, dry cough, shortness of breath, and rash, right? There's GI symptoms. There can be heart problems. There's blood vessel problems. There's uh, skin problems. All these things can go with COVID, and some people may have more symptoms that uh, predominate like GI than the respiratory. So if you're having progressive symptoms, it may mean you need to be tested again or three times to, to see if that's what you've got. The other issue is some people are sick with this for a few weeks, and so they may have symptoms for a long time. And that just sounds so terrible to have it for multiple weeks. I think it would be terrible because if you have it that long, uh, you're having some pretty significant symptoms. Um, I have had some patients that tested positive. The majority of them were sick for just a few days and got over it like you would a cold or the flu. Don't mind the barking dog if you can hear that. Our neighbors are apparently getting in and out of their car, and our little puppy is making sure that she's guarding us well while they do that. <laughs> she likes to do that. Yes, she's a, she's a good guard dog. Speaking of guarding us and protection, <laughs> we've had some questions about supplements and vitamins and things like that and how effective they can be to help prevent COVID. So that's another uh, hot topic right now. First of all, I want everybody to know there's no treatment. There's no proven prevention. We hope that a vaccine can do that in the future. One of the things that's probably been the most positively reviewed is vitamin D. There is a correlation in some of the studies that have been done that low vitamin D predicts worse disease. And these are people that are in the hospital. And so people are extrapolating that if we take vitamin D, it may help treat it or prevent it. I have a question about that. So okay. with vitamin D, does low vitamin D, is that something that they find in people who have different diseases also? Is that a predictor of just disease in general? No. Or do you mean mostly people who have had COVID and they're super sick, they're finding that they're low in vitamin D? That is, that statement is taking it too far. Okay. Okay, because okay. not everybody who gets super sick has low vitamin D. Okay. Okay, so we're talking about a correlation, not a causation. Okay. But statistically, it seems that if you have low vitamin D, you're more likely to be seriously sick. With COVID. With COVID. Okay. Yeah, because we're talking about COVID. Okay. Yes. I just wanted to I just wanted to make sure yes, of yes. that and right. it wasn't. So I just didn't say that. that. That's correct. Okay. Now so some people are suggesting that if we if you take vitamin D, then that may prevent you from getting sick with COVID or prevent you from getting infected. So we can't say that yet. What I could suggest it is is that if you are low in vitamin D, it might be helpful to take vitamin D to supplement, and that may, that may help. It might help. <laughs> it might help. Okay? It's we, so awesome to be so decisive. We don't know. <laughs> That's the important thing here. Now, some of the other things, zinc and vitamin C as 
immune system boosters and things. Most people are not low on vitamin C and taking super high doses of vitamin C are probably not helpful and could potentially be harmful. Same with zinc. Zinc may help reduce the seriousness of viral infections overall and might be helpful with COVID, but we just don't know yet. And so that's the important take-home message is if you're going to choose to take some of these things, don't take them in super high doses because you could end up causing more harm to yourself trying to prevent something that most likely is going to be a mild illness anyway. So we don't want to, the treatment or the prevention to be worse than the disease. Right. Whenever I or we as physicians recommend any type of treatment, we are doing that knowing that there's a chance it could be harmful. There's always risk factors. In to a any, patient. Yeah. In anything. But the things that we recommend have been studied. There's evidence to support their use that the benefit outweighs the potential risk. We don't have anything like that for COVID yet. There hasn't been any studies to say vitamin D can prevent it. Because you think about what it would take to do a study like that. You'd have to have some patients taking vitamin D and some not. And then you'd have to purposefully infect them with COVID. Who's signing up for that study? Exactly. (laughs) Not I. So all of these studies are done without, you know, direct evidence or a controlled study. It's all, uh, it's almost all anecdotal in a way because, you know, you're looking at correlation type studies and not causation. And it it makes it very difficult. So just be aware that things that are on the internet and social (laughs) media that suggest there are things that you can do to prevent getting COVID, there are. And they are social distancing. Washing your hands. (laughs) Washing your hands. Not special supplements. I think that kind of falls into the category of if you take it in normal doses and you feel better about that, and you feel healthy, and you feel good about that, and you're doing it in normal, healthy doses, it's perfectly fine, right? Right. So what you're suggesting is right. That is probably not harmful to do that. It's not proven to prevent you from getting it. It's also probably not helpful. Right. (laughs) But it's probably not harmful. So if it's probably not harmful, and it might be helpful, we just don't know yet, then maybe it's okay. (laughs) Another decisive episode from Dr. D. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I don't want to tell somebody this is the way to go and they OD on zinc, right? (laughs) Right. But, again, a new category of things you can find on the Internet that you should check out. Yes. Because somebody's out there saying that and they have, there's no risk to them at all. Right. If it has a massively negative effect on somebody check out the sources talk to a health provider that you trust yeah and now's a good time for our disclaimer right we're not giving medical advice (laughs) if you have questions talk to your doctor right they will be able to provide you the best advice for your specific situation right your doctor who you see most often nurse practitioner physician assistant i want to group all of those in there because One of my favorite people to bounce ideas and thoughts off of is someone who is a PA here locally. And she's great. 
She is. Okay. One of the questions we've gotten is, when will this end? Another decisive topic point. I'll predict never. (laughs) What about the Farmer's Almanac? I saw that shared on social media. What was it? Where it said, in 2020, there will be this disease that's terrible. I'd have to look it up to get the actual. There will be this disease and did Nostradamus predict it too? I'm not sure. And then it's going to, and I don't even know if this is accurate that it came from the Farmer's Almanac because it was a social media thing that said yeah. from the Farmer's Almanac. And you didn't check it out, right? I didn't check it out. And it said it's going to go away and it's going to come back in 10 years and then it's going to be gone forever. So maybe that's what will happen and that'll be awesome. Maybe it will. I would love it to end this year, but I just, I, I don't see it personally and medically. I think this is going to be with us for a while. I hope that a vaccine will eradicate it, but we just don't know that yet. If it's going to be something that provides long-term immunity or not, there's too many variables, too many questions. And there's so many people that'll say, well, the flu vaccine hasn't gotten rid of the flu. so It hasn't. It, it's very possible that it's yeah. going to work something like that. Along the lines of, you know, how long is this going to be with us? When will this end? I I still think it's important to realize and understand that right now, this particular virus, and it could change, you know, there's a chance it could mutate and it could become more deadly to more people. But right now, this particular virus is only dangerous to a small percentage of people. But if that virus were to infect the whole country at one time, that would be a very large number of people. Right. And that's what we've tried to reduce with social distancing and closing everything down. But still, for most people, this illness is not severe. And if we can develop a vaccine or if herd immunity is provided by, you know, 50 or 60 percent of the people of the population getting infected, then that would protect the most vulnerable then maybe we will see it end. But if not, then I don't know that we will. Or at least see it end as a major concern. Yeah. Just right. kind of so goes the, the way of the The blue. answer to that question is we don't know. <laughs> right? <laughs> After all those words, we don't know. Let me see if I can find any more questions that we can say maybe and we don't know about. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Well, here's a question. I think we can give some definitive answers. And there's still a little bit of maybe involved in this one. (laughs) And that is video visits. That's one Uh of the things that has really come out of this is is video visits or telehealth, things like that. So something that might have taken five to ten years to change, for me anyway, changed overnight. I went from never wanting to do telemedicine, to having to do telemedicine, and now liking telemedicine in a month. I mean, it was a lightning change. And in fact, during April, most of my visits were video visits, and it almost seemed abnormal when patients started coming back to the office. It was that (laughs) dramatic of a difference. Wow. So I think telemedicine is here to stay in one form or another. A lot of it depends on the healthcare system that people are involved in and their particular physicians. If you go to a provider or or in a healthcare system 
that has the technology, it can be very beneficial. I have had visits with people in different parts of the country who went to stay with family. I have had visits with patients who are of advanced age who did not want to come to the office, but we were able to do a video visit and get their needs taken care of. Now, there are some things we can't do with a video visit, right? We can't really do a physical exam. Right. And so some things don't work well in a video visit. I think I have an ear infection, or I think I have strep throat, or I broke my arm. Yeah. <laughs> Here, you let know. me tell you over the video how to set your arm. <laughs> right. Or, you know, I'm having abdominal pain. That doesn't work very well. Right. But a lot of things are, you know, specifically follow-up visits, uh, mental health visits, you know, visits that you might just need refills of medications or, or follow up on chronic illnesses. Those work really well for video visits. And I know a lot of my patients appreciated having that opportunity and availability. And it really made it easier on our staff when we had less people in the office. And it made it easier on me not being worried about potentially infecting our staff or getting infected myself when we were, you know, at the scariest part of the right. this initial Well, and even close infecting down. other patients who come in sure. and that sort of thing. So I did a survey and got some really good responses. Cool. I had a questionnaire and several people. Now, obviously, this is not a scientific survey. I didn't have the numbers for that to report it anywhere. But I think it was a pretty good cross-section of people's experiences with doing a virtual medical visit. And from our responses, about 34% were routine prescription refills, getting information from a lab report, things like that, follow-up type visits. And in most of the visits, well, 83% were able to resolve their issue. That seems really high. Yeah, it really does. I'm sure that other 18% or so, 17 to 18%, were probably things like, oh, I think you do need to go ahead and come in. Or, yes, I think you do need to go have a COVID test or whatever. And we had quite a few of those. Yeah. 65% or 64.7% had a positive, the highest rating. I did it on a scale of 1 to 5. Okay. 65% had a five, and then it was kind of tied for three and four, and nobody had the worst visit ever, so that was nice. (laughs) That would have been fun. I totally would have followed that up. (laughs) Tell me about your worst visit ever. That has to be a face-to-face visit, right? The worst visit ever. (laughs) Maybe so. I can just hang up on him if I don't like how this is going (laughs) with the virtual visit. 76.5% thought that their office visit and the virtual visit were about the same in effectiveness. No one said it was more effective, which is kind of interesting. And the other 23.5% said it was less effective. So those are probably those people who didn't get things resolved, things like that. 75% said that their virtual visits were covered by their insurance. Oh, good. There's a few that said no and a few that said prefer not to answer. So really 76.5. Okay. I just think all these numbers are good. You guys know this now about me that I like numbers. I like statistics. I didn't really know that about me till all of this started, (laughs) but I kind of love it. This question is great though. The question was, would you prefer to continue having the option for virtual visits after the pandemic? What do you think the percentage is on that? I would think it's high. 
okay, this is not what card sharks or something where uh, you say higher or lower. Eighty <laughs> percent. Oh, really close. Eighty-eight point two. Wow, ninety. So I guess card sharks higher, higher. Ninety <laughs> percent. Yeah, almost ninety percent, which I thought was interesting. I can see that. So some of the most positive aspects were they didn't have to go out and have risks of being infected by COVID patients. It was a great way to talk to your primary care provider about getting a referral to a specialist for other things. And sometimes that's what happens in a regular office visit. The biggest positive for most people was it took less time. I could be where I was. I could be at my office and not have to take the time to leave and drive somewhere, sit and wait, drive back. It just, it, it was a much more efficient use of time. Yeah, I, I think that was the most positive feedback I got from people is, hey, this is great. I didn't even have to leave work to come do this. Or some of them had stepped out of the office and maybe into their car where they could have a little bit of privacy if they didn't have a, a private space at work. Right. But they didn't have to take time off. You know, they could do it during their break or lunch or something and just hop on and hop off and get back to work. One person said, and I didn't need a babysitter. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. And then we also got some details about some of the negatives or ways that that could be improved. And most of that was just connection type things, making sure that Everybody made the made sure the connection was stable before trying to start the visit, things like that. So the great majority of my small sampling <laughs> was that they thought it was quite effective and they would like to keep doing it. So do you think this is something that will continue to be available for most patients? I do. I think that part of this is here to stay. I think that different systems and different offices will incorporate it differently. Some providers are more willing to do it than others. You know, before this started, I had no desire to do any type of telemedicine video visits, but I kind of changed my mind. I kind of like it now in a lot of, for a lot of things. It doesn't work for everything, and we've talked about that. So it just depends on how it gets worked into a schedule. In our office, we don't have the ability to do it in every exam room, so you couldn't just automatically substitute appointments, video, regular, just in a schedule. We'd have to set up, probably set up specific times so that we could share the area where we'll eventually be doing video visits. Because you still do that as if you were seeing them in the office in a very private space. Oh, yeah. It's completely one-on-one. Right. I did all of mine in an exam room with either my iPad or my, my phone. We won't be able to continue to do it that way. They relaxed the rules. HIPAA rules were relaxed a little bit during this pandemic, but once things get back to relatively normal, I think those rules will tighten up again and we'll have to have specific technology and specific HIPAA qualifying so it's uh, more private. programs to ensure the privacy of the patient. Yeah. I would think that especially as we're still seeing this illness though, those more vulnerable people should definitely take advantage of that. And I guess if you want to find out if your provider does that if you need an appointment just call the office and ask ask them yeah that's the easiest thing to do that's the best thing to do so takeaways from this episode (laughs) we don't have all the answers (laughs) everything's a maybe telemedicine is good (laughs) there you go (laughs) right perfect perfect (laughs) wow we could have done this in a two second 
podcast. <laughs> well, I think it's good to talk about it. I think it's good for us to kind of share our thoughts on it because we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, what your experiences have been, what your thoughts on it are. We're not going to debate with you. If you think everything should open up and people should stop wearing masks because it's stupid, then that's your opinion. Of course. Whatever. I'm going to stay six feet away from you <laughs> in right. the store. At least six feet and wear a <laughs> but, mask. <laughs> but it's fine. So we're not here to debate. If you think that everybody should still be at home, I'm like happy to sit on my couch and keep learning songs on my ukulele because that's what go. I've been doing. <laughs> Everybody's got a right to that opinion. The biggest thing is just do what you can to stay safe yourself and to be safe for the people around you. And that's the biggest thing is we want people to be safe, you know, practice good hygiene and limit the spread of this uh, crazy thing during this crazy time. And remember that all of this is not being done so that no one will catch it again. Right. There are a lot of different estimates about how many people will actually end up catching it. And I'm, this is, I'm going to share just my personal opinion. I kind of figure that at some point I will very likely have COVID. Unless a vaccine comes out that works. Right. Yep. But I kind of want to wait six or eight. 10 months down the road. Get some some good treatments available. Get some better treatments, (laughs) some more knowledge about how it works, things like that. So that's why why I'm kind of where I am in the middle of that, of I'm still trying to be a little more careful. So that's just me personally. I'm, you know, still taking more precautions because I want to wait a little longer (laughs) to catch it. Uh, Ditto. (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening. This has been fun to talk about today, this crazy topic. Thank you for being part of the Real Health Chats family. Make sure that you tell your friends about us. Everybody subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Real Health Chats. And you can follow me at Becky the Doctor's Wife. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. What was discussed today is for information only and is not meant to replace or override advice from your physician.